and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are Chief Washington Correspondent for the New York Times, Carl Hulse, and Israeli foreign policy expert and journalist, Elon Pincus. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicsroarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the link to our sponsor, ExpressVPN, in our episode show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors because it really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. James, this is the great sports season, as we were saying the other day. Uh, Major League Baseball playoffs, the NFL is going, and uh, NBA is starting its exhibitions at least. But the story of this week is the Philadelphia Phillies. Uh, it is an extraordinary story. They have power like I'm actually the story this week is the Washington Nationals Alumni Club uh, because it's Bryce Harper and it's Trey Turner and it's Kyle Schwarber. And uh, it's just it's just the most impressive display of both hitting and pitching that I've seen in a long time. I think this is just an awesome team that's peaking at just the right time. Well, I, I tell you something. I like the Phillies just because I love the way they play. I love to watch them play. I mean, they play, they're having fun, they want to win, they're competitive, it's crazy, they pull for each other, they're kind of one with their fans. Um, it's just a more interesting dynamic than Arizona has, and it's pretty easy to see. But but the one thing that I do like, and I wish we could do more of it, is daytime baseball in October. I don't. I just love like a, a three o'clock first pitch game. Or back when you had four, you'd have a one o'clock first pitch in, in yeah. Central Time. And man, I, I, I don't know why. Just memories of my childhood. It, it, the weather is like actually pretty good down here. It's fall baseball. I, I love it. It's great. Well, I couldn't agree with you more, but I think we know the answer. The answer is money. Uh, they make more money at night than they do during the day. I, I, you know, you argue with them, and, and I say, yeah, you do, but over a period of time. You know, the Super Bowl starts at 6 o'clock Eastern time, all right? That seems to be pretty good. They, 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 they're not doing too bad, you know, as opposed to, like, starting the World Series at 8.30 Eastern time. Yep. I mean, maybe sometimes you got to take a little bit of a short-term hit to build in a long-term brand. But, you know, they have to go against the NFL, a lot of World Series games, but they could... It, but you're right. If they didn't, if they start the game, they'd lose some audience on the West Coast. But I think you'd build audience at better starting times. Their college football, Deion Sanders, probably a big story. Well, just before we go, Deion, because because I think you made a good point. The other thing you're losing by not having daytime games is young viewers. You know, you're not getting some of right. those. I mean, I fell in baseball, fell in love with baseball at age seven, and if games are played at eight thirty at night, I can't watch it. But yeah, I was, I, couldn't well, watch I was it. alluding to Dion's com- comments on start times. Oh, he said, oh, "Who yeah, in the hell wants to start at nine o'clock? Right, Nobody." Right. And he said, what are you going to do? What do you do with my woman? Do with my players all day. I mean, I talk about the game so much. Is Dion's observation that I completely agree with. They, they stagger these starts, and they, these kids end up start playing games at 9 o'clock at night, and the game starts at 11 o'clock Eastern time. 
And so there, no one gets to see you on TV. You got to sit in a freaking hotel all day. They got to rethink these start times. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You picking the Phillies to go all the way? Uh, but you, you, you don't want me to pick anybody to go all the way in baseball. There's no one to ever <laughs> write about anything. I, I'm just, I'm a modest enough fan. I, I, I was a little disappointed in the the round that these games haven't gone that many. They're, you know, they're best out of three, and most of them won two in a row. I, I'm pulling for seven games. I mean, I want the Phillies to win, but I, I would rather the Phillies, you know, Losing seven and winning six—that's me. I just want—I want the Phillies to win at the end of the day, but I really want seven games. Well, I would just add, in addition to those, that team, which is as as compelling as you just said, those fans or something. You know, they don't sit down; they stand up. They're 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 Bryce tough. Harper, again, but, I got man, they, they are so avid, and uh, and and James, I—I'll tell you, your record may not be that good, but mine is really quite prescient. I I confidently predicted a Dodgers Braves World Series, and so we see how good I am on this. But uh, well, I don't think you can have a Dodgers Braves World Series. I don't mean to correct you. That was part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's that's that, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, you you just don't know. Somebody comes in. You know, well, let's wait and see. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you couldn't be hotter than the Philadelphia Phillies are right now. No. And you couldn't have better team chemistry. Right. And people are, you know, Nola, they, he fixed something with his delivery and it's really made a difference. And, you know, they got some pretty, you know, let's see, but, but they, they seem to be in position to do pretty well. So why, why did our team give up all those guys and not get much in return? You know, I guess I'd say baseball teams evolve. <laughs> We're evolving the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's for sure. But, you know, they won a few more games than people thought they would this year, to be Yeah, they did a little bit better. It depends on whether some of those those uh, minor league potential superstars, including the guy who just graduated from, just, or just so How'd LSU. you like to be a San Diego Padres fan? Oh, man. God. Man. Or, or, or the California Angels. Yeah. I mean, I mean wow. Yeah. Hey, you know, the, I tell you, you talk about, like, the great stuff that you got to put in what Red Auerbach did or what John Wooden did or what Casey Single did or what Bill Belichick did. I'll tell you what I would put right up there. It, and of course, you had to cheat and have things that ever. But Houston has been to the American League Championship game seven years in a row. Right. That does not happen in this sports environment, in this kind of competition. Now, it. Is it the same as, you know, 10 out of 11 and say championships doesn't take the same ring, but my God damn, it's hard in, in this kind of environment, particularly in baseball or football, seven times in a row to get to the league championship series. Remember, I guess about 10 years ago when they were awful uh, and Sports Illustrated put them on the cover and said the George team is Springer. the future. And everybody, everybody laughed and said, ah, oh, come on. Man, they were so right. They are, they have been the team of the future. Actually, yeah, a couple yeah. great, I mean, Atlanta's a great franchise. Oh, of course, are. the Dodgers with their money are always in there. Yeah. Uh, look, what about Tampa Bay? Mm-hmm. That's about just get that guy. Shit, you know you're going to win 92 games. 
I mean, the, the, the thing is, in, in professional sports, Major League Baseball is most unpredictable. Football, second. Pro basketball is fairly predictable. Yeah. I, I mean, we College basketball, of, less so. Less so, yes. It, it, it used to be more predictable, running out. And I, I saw the college basketball magazines. You know, it's kind of hard to follow it, college basketball, till after the first of the year. But, you know, I looked at the SEC looks like they got five in the top 25, but I think the Tennessee's nine. That's the highest ranking they got. Mm-hmm. But they, they, I don't see a lot of surprises there either. No, no, I don't either. How's Wake Forest going to be this year? I can't. I, I, well, I tell you something. They got a big kid who started at LSU uh, named Reed, and then he transferred to Gonzaga. He was pretty good at LSU, and for some reason, I guess he lost the coach. He transferred to Gonzaga and was so-so. And the question is, are they gonna, is he eligible? If you've transferred twice, uh, it's, a, it's a harder test. He's pretty good, and he would be a, he would be, they're, they're terrific on the perimeter. They're very good on the perimeter. And uh, if they get him, I think they'll be a pretty good team. Well, I, you know, we, we would be aspirational to get 500 in the conference, but the women's basketball team, she's number one in the country. Oh, yeah, I, and I think they're better this year than last year. They, they're going to play a women's basketball game. Remember, some of uh, prediction, and I have inside, in, no inside information, when Nebraska did that volleyball game in, in Cornhusker Stadium and was 80000 for a volley, women's volleyball game. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if we play a basketball game in the Tiger Stadium <laughs> Sunday afternoon and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, March or something like that. But, man, what, what, what they have done for women's sports in Baton Rouge is, is just, it's, it's, un- it's unbelievable. And then, you know, when you look at, you know, even Shikari Williams, uh, Richardson, what she's been able to do, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty remarkable, the explosion and, you know, gymnastics, we won the Final Four. And basketball, we won the Final Four. I mean, we're, we're getting better in softball. But women's sports, is, we never thought we'd see this in our lifetime. I guarantee you that. James, as the situation grows more tense in the Middle East, President Biden makes an historic trip to Israel after it suffered its worst day when Hamas attacked and slaughtered uh, more than a thousand Israelis. And this week, a hospital uh, in Gaza was devastated with Hamas and Israel saying it was the other guy that did it. To help us understand these intense cross currents and dangers is Elon Pincus, a former Israeli national security advisor and now a prominent columnist there. Um, Elon, there appears a, 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 a just a, uh, you know, almost a conundrum here. It was, uh, I accept the fact that it was the Hamas ally that probably misfired that missile. But nevertheless, it set off rage on the Arab streets. Leaders refused to meet President Biden. Uh, the situation has really gotten worse over the last couple of days, hasn't it? Yeah, well, to be honest, uh, guys, uh, you know, that, that's, that was inevitable. I mean, there's no way it could get better. Uh, the chances of a status quo were slim, and so it had, you know, something had to give, and, and it became worse. Look, when there's so much firepower 
um, concentrated in an area so dense, it's the most densely populated strip of land on this planet with 2.2 million people. Um, you know, a, a, things like what happened at the hospital are bound to happen. Now, the fact that it wasn't according to all ballistic indications that it wasn't Israel but a Hamas misfire, and the fact that it, it, it may not have been 500 deaths but, uh, I don't know, 308, uh, makes no difference in terms of the, you know, the magnitude of what had happened. And I have some bad, good, uh, some bad news for you. Uh, um, this is probably going to get worse. Yeah, I think it is. You you wrote that for all the visible, I would say, eloquent support that President Biden has given the Israelis, that there has been a paradigm shift with this in yeah. U.S.-Israeli relations. You know, tell right. us how. Tell us why. Well, you know, the paradigm shift is evident via Biden's actions, and I will elaborate on that in a moment, but it's been, it's been in the making for the better part of the last decade. Um, you have a, a prime minister, Mr. Netanyahu, uh, who has been playing and messing and meddling in American politics for a long time, uh, who has distanced himself and, and basically um, alienated most of the Democrats. Um, you know, this, this, this started, and James Carville right here would remember that as vividly, if not more vividly than I, this began in the 90s when he declared a bromance with Newt Gingrich against Bill Clinton. And it went on uh, uh, during the Obama years and then his uh, um, love fest with Donald Trump. And so you saw the cracks in the relationship. Now, then there's a, a, a geopolitical or strategic uh, layer to this. The U.S. in the last decade has been disengaging from the Middle East. Um, it is focused on China being the main challenge for the next few decades. It is exhausted, fatigued, and no longer interested in fighting or entangling itself in wars like Afghanistan or Iraq. And, and there's no chance of a peace process between Israel and the Palestinians, and the U.S. began to shift positions. Now we come fast forward to this visit and to this uh, visit by Biden and this crisis and this war that began October 7th. What you see, the signs of this paradigm shift, is that the U.S. seems to be um, missing or, or, or having very little confidence in the quality of Israeli decision-making. It has almost zero confidence in the, uh, in the leadership skills and the abilities and competency of Mr. Netanyahu. It is sending a carrier strike force, the Gerald Ford, and another aircraft carrier, the Dwight Eisenhower, and a 2,000-strong Marine Corps uh, rapid response team, and putting the 5th Fleet in Bahrain on high alert. And you ask yourself, wait, I mean, the Hamas attack was savage, barbaric, uh, devastating, agonizing, but it's Hamas. This is not World War II and this is not the German army. Okay, why would the U.S. need to send these kind of forces? Okay, so the U.S. answered that partially by saying to deter uh, regional actors, namely Iran and Hezbollah, um, from expanding, escalating, spreading the, the conflict, as Anthony Blinken has said. 
But you have to conclude that, you know, Blinken being here twice, the U.S. dispatching forces on that magnitude, and then the president himself, Joe Biden, coming here, shows a lack of confidence uh, that the U.S. has in Israel right now. And possibly, possibly, this is me guesstimating or speculating, um, if you will, um, possibly not a hundred percent certain that Israel can defend itself without American help in the event of escalation. This is where the paradigm shift. I mean, look, Al, the Secretary of State of the United States of America sat down yesterday, Tuesday, for six whole hours in an Israeli war cabinet meeting. I mean, when did you ever hear of anything like this happening to, you know, in, in, in a fellow allied uh, democracy? Never. And so I, I see those signs. Picking up on your intriguing point that they worry about a larger conflict, do you have any sense of how Iran and Hezbollah, do they, seize this as, do they see this as an opportunity? Uh, yeah. If they did, should they have done it earlier? Uh, is there, uh, uh, what, what, how dangerous is it right now? Well, it's very dangerous and it's very volatile. You know, it's very difficult for me to get into the heads of uh, um, Iranians or Hezbollah. But there's no question now, there's no question that, uh, um, you know, they're in this for the chaos, for the anarchy, for the instability. I wouldn't be surprised uh, um, in a few months or a few short years' time to see that the Russians were involved in this too, to saw discord and, and you know, viewing everything as vis-a-vis uh, -vis America, the U.S. is a zero-sum game. And so they're trying to lure Israel into this. Now, the tiniest of miscalculations, the tiniest, the slimmest of misperceptions could lead to a uh, hell breaking loose, um, which is what Biden ostensibly said he wants to prevent, which is something he, he apparently believes Israel cannot handle um, on its own, which again is somewhat humiliating given the size of our military and the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the decades of bragging of how good our intelligence is and how good, or the war early warning and how good the platforms and the technology and the cyber warfare capabilities. Now, as of now, it seems like Iran is reticent to uh, get involved. They, they apparently understand the consequences. Surely after Mr. Biden's uh, um, warnings last week, in his speech at the White House on Tuesday. Uh, but to tell you that this uh, um, escalation won't happen as a result of that miscalculation I mentioned, I, I would not bet against that. Well, Elon, one test may be what happens in the ensuing days and weeks in Gaza. Uh, Biden has, I think, quite clearly said to Netanyahu, go in, but go in quickly and get out. Right. That really conflicts with Netanyahu's promise to eradicate Hamas. Uh, Hamas, you can't do that. You can't do both. You can't go in, get out quickly, and eradicate Hamas. So, what gives? Oh, nothing gives because because Netanyahu, you know, he's all about speeches and uh, um, you know and, and 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 noises and and chest pumping. Um, for fifteen years, he's been uh, um, you know promising and bragging that. I will eradicate Hamas, I will obliterate Hamas, I will eliminate Hamas, I will dismantle Hamas, I will do this to Hamas, Hamas will never be, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, stand up on its feet again. Well, lo and behold, uh, they are. And so when the president says 
um, do what you need to do, exact, you know, seek and exact the justice and the retribution that you rightly and justifiably uh, uh, deserve. But be careful not to go into Gaza because that would uh, suck you into a quagmire that would leave you there. He just today before he left, he said, take example from 9-11. We, we had this rage in us, he said, Biden said. Um, and, and we sought and, and, and got our justice, but we made many, mis many mistakes on the way. Uh, learn from our experience. Now, okay, that's great, but you made a great point. Um, the two are not uh, reconcilable. The two cannot, you know, it's like uh, we, should, we should remove the communist regime in Hanoi, but, but we will not do anything in South Vietnam. Now, come on, you, 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 it's either that or not. It's either or. Israel cannot eliminate Hamas without a major ground operation. That's as simple as that. A, a ground operation is by definition going to be bloody, lengthy, and costly. Um, so a decision needs to be made. You know, it's almost, Al, it's almost a binary choice. James Carville. So, sir, I want to be clear that I heard what I, I, heard what I thought I'd heard. And I thought I heard you say that the United States has lost confidence in Israeli intelligence and, is, and Israeli military strategy. Well, in, in, in Mr. Netanyahu. In Netanyahu, but, but... Yes, correct. Yes, but I he, did say that. Yeah, absolutely. That, 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 that's a pretty stunning, stunning place for a country like Israel to be when it's at war. And I honestly, know. the only real ally it has right now is the United States. That's right. But at uh, any rate, so here we are. My uh, grandson's dad is a pretty observant Jewish guy from the north side of Chicago. And they always talk about that we're going to take you know, him to Jerusalem and my daughter would take him to Rome and the holy sites. How does how do I get the all clear when I can tell my son-in-law, OK, y'all can go now. What, what, what's going to how, how does this end? OK, no one is like said, all right, these are three ways this thing ends. And I, I don't know if a single one. So help me. Well, you know, there, there are two possibilities here, uh, uh, James. Uh, one is that Israel goes into Gaza, does what it does, successful, semi-successful or unsuccessful, and essentially stays in Gaza. That was the story of 20 years ago, and that was that was the story of how we got uh, stuck in Lebanon for so long, until Ehud Barak, Prime Minister, whom uh, uh, James knows very well, very until well. he got us out in May of, two, of the year 2000. Now, um, so either we go in or we don't go in, and you know, in this ping pong, uh, um, um, remains, but in two or three or four weeks, everything's going to be quiet and tranquil again. Um, and your grandson can go to uh, to Jerusalem and visit the, the holy sites, whether Christian or Jewish. Um, I, I don't know, because there's a possibility here, James, that this will be um, um, expanded or escalated into the West Bank and Jerusalem. Now, I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm not saying this is necessarily going to happen. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to look for a silver lining here, which I think is basically what Biden tried to uh, convey. And I do see a, a political change uh, uh, in Israel after this is all, after the dust, so to speak, uh, settles. 
I think your grandson within three, four weeks could come to Israel um, confidently and, and securely. Really? Right. Yeah. Right. That, that, well, you, you're, you're in a position to know. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm not. not. But I know what you're saying. He is, he's your right. grandson and you care just right. about him. But, you know, you can have a mass shooting at, at, at a Target in Chicago or in Dallas. Or in clearly. And, you know, the best time to fly on an airline is right after one of their planes crash. Because <laughs> it's oh, the safest flight you're going to ever have in your life. The, 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 so... The United States, we went all in on Israel's side. We were not equivocal at all. Is it a fair point to say, well, maybe we're not, we're not going to be accepted as a broker in any kind of peace deal, that other people are going to look at us as, as a belligerent in this contest, not, not, a, a, not a Switzerland or a benign power or anything. Was that, do you think that was a consideration that they made and they said, no, we've got to do this because... If we don't, it'll end worse. You, you, mean, you mean, James, the U.S. being a mediator between Israel and Hamas? Yeah, what I'm saying is because the United States has taken, right, but, but whatever, but, but an intermediary for, for the whole thing. Look, the U.S. has been scarred and hemorrhaged and fatigued and lost reputation and expended political capital. Bill Clinton did that. Uh, uh, um, and Barack Obama did that, and even Trump, to, to a, a limited degree, did that. Uh, the U.S., as of 2014, that was when John Kerry was Secretary of State, essentially stopped mediating between Israel and, and the U.S. And, and the Palestinians. Uh, the U.S., they said repeatedly since the Bill Clinton years, cannot want peace more than the parties. Okay, you recall... Uh, Bill Clinton's uh, parameters, that, that final speech that he made in December of 2000 upon leaving office in January of 2001, in which he said, this is what I, this is my vision of what can theoretically be agreed on. This is my, uh, this is what I think can be done. And this is what the U.S. sees as, as agreeable and what the U.S. sees as at this point unbridgeable. So, Successive U.S. administrations followed Bill Clinton's leads, and, and, and the last was Obama in 2014, and it's been nine years. And so I don't think the U.S. wants to get involved unless it sees a genuine and honest, a, uh, uh, um, um, you know, a, a profound um, um, interest on, on both the Israeli side and the Palestinian side uh, to do so. Now, what this crisis may, may provide is for the U.S. to come up with a uh, day-after plan. Because Israel will surely uh, fail to do so, because the Palestinians, you can't expect them to do anything of, of, of any value, of any positive value. So the U.S. can say, okay, in, 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 a, in broader geopolitical terms, in order to get the Saudis back on our side, in order to deter the Iranians, in order to uh, expand the so-called Abraham Accords, we need a Palestinian component, and here's our plan. And they will lay out a plan. And they could do that by Biden, say, inviting the Prime Minister of Israel, the President of the Palestinian Authority, and believe it or not, MBS, uh, um, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. For that to happen, gentlemen, uh, there needs to be a different government in Israel. Right now, there's an extreme right-wing, semi-fascist government in Israel 
that enjoys very little legitimacy in the wake of uh, uh, this this current war and crisis. So, so, so my answer. I know I talk too much. Uh, That's all right. uh, my, my answer to you, James, is huh? I don't see the U.S. playing any role until it sees or it is it is uh, confident that both sides are serious. Go ahead, Al. Uh, I want to get back to to Bibi. You're no fan, and I share your views. Uh, and I think he bears considerable responsibility for this uh, tragedy. I'm sure if there were election today, from everything I hear, he'd get clobbered. But if nothing else, he is an incredible survivor. Uh, yes, he is. And could it be it's in his interest to drag out this war as long as possible in hopes that some of the animosity lessens and he can hang on? Well, it's a fair question, but the more he drags it, there are more. The more there are casualties. The the yeah. names and faces and people. This is a small country. People care about each other. People know each other. Everyone is on a first name basis in on this in this country, even though half of us hate, hate the other half and vice versa. And so, I don't think dragging this out is going to be of any help. I do think, and. I'm sure you both, you gentlemen, have followed this to a degree. Just before the uh, um, well, the, the, the this war, which began October seventh, Saturday, ten days ago, was preceded by nine months of political upheaval in Israel, wherein hundreds of thousands of pro-democracy protesters took to the streets to uh, uh, demonstrate against Mr. Netanyahu's um, anti-democratic uh, uh, constitutional coup. I believe that this um, this political um, um, critical mass is going to morph into anti-Netanyahu sentiment just on the issue focused on his ineptness and incompetence uh, um, in this in this war. So, yes. He's going to try and survive. Yes, he cannot. His he has a good. He has. He speaks English well, but he cannot, for the life of him, he cannot spell accountability or responsibility. These two words just don't exist in his vocabulary, and I think he will be dragged out at some point. He will be pushed out from within the political system. I mean, aided by grassroots demonstrations, um, he will be kicked out. I mean, the, the, you know, even a survivor of of his talents and skills. Uh, comes to a point where, you know, enough is enough and, and, and the walls are closing in on him. Well, and, um, when they do a review of this, a report on this, it's almost, I mean, they have to conclude that uh, that that his that nine-month campaign was a distraction from other things, a distraction from military preparedness, a distraction yeah. from intelligence. I mean, hell, short-term, Hamas had better intelligence uh, in that area than, than Israel did uh, uh, for that. I mean, doesn't, I mean, that's a, he, 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 he's guilty. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And look, if he had, if he had the decency um, you know, the, 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 the ethical code, the, the moral fortitude, uh, um, he should have resigned a long time ago. I mean, it happened with Menachem Begin, the prime minister of Israel, in, in 1983 in the wake of the Lebanon war. And it happened with Neville Chamberlain um, in 1940 in Britain when, when he was seen as unfit to continue uh, leading uh, uh, Britain after the fall of Norway. So the precedents are there. But again, this guy lacks uh, uh, the scruples, lacks the, 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 the moral values, lacks the, uh, uh, and, um, you know, uh, 
the chief of the general staff, the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces chief of staff, already said, uh, it's my fault, we made mistakes. The chief of the general security service, the Shabak, the equivalent of the uh, American FBI, said, this happened on my watch, I am responsible. The chief of military intelligence, uh, uh, Major General Aaron Khaliwa said, this is, this, is, this is my bad, this is my uh, responsibility. How does Mr. Netanyahu interpret these three mea culpas? He doesn't think it, it oblig obligates or commits him. He's saying, oh, well, so now we know. They misled me, they, they screwed up. Um, it's their fault, not mine. My point is, Al, to you, I can go on and on. My point is, um, it ain't gonna work. This, this, you know, this is, this is one crisis too far. There are 2,000, nearly 2,000 killed here. Um, he's not gonna survive this. Well, then tell me about Benny Gass, who is on the Unity, the Unity military right. Uh, right. Uh, right. group there now. Um, what role do you see him playing in that? And, and is he a leading candidate to be the next prime minister when Netanyahu goes? You know, I don't know. Here's the thing with Benny Gantz, uh, for the benefit of, of, of whomever is going to watch or listen to the podcast. Um, Benny Gantz, a former chief of staff, a former lieutenant general um, who went into politics, um, wasn't very good at it, um, made some, got some, a lot of support, but couldn't form a government in the four election cycles that we held between 2019 and 2021. Um, he then lost a lot of, uh, um, you know, a lot of uh, um, elevation, political elevation um, in the last election and went down to 12 seats, uh, about 10 percent, well, exactly 10 percent of the parliament. Now, you asked Al about the uh, unity government. It needs to be explained. This is not a unity government. The composition of the coalition has not changed. This is a, a declared ad hoc temporary um, war cabinet in which he was brought in without a portfolio to tap on his military experience. If the war ends in three weeks, theoretically, Netanyahu is going to shake his hand and say, get lost. Okay, you've done your thing. But the war, the war is not going to end in three weeks. And I think he may have... Um, a, a pivotal role, a central role in, in ousting Netanyahu. Will that make him prime minister? I don't know. You know, the, you know, the, 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 the political scenarios and speculations here uh, go wild. And there, you know, there are too many moving parts here for me to estimate that. Let me ask one more and turn it back to James. You know, I was taught years ago that when it comes to the Middle East, pessimism pays. Uh, but <laughs> if you want to be an optimist today and you want to look ahead right. and say at some point, y you inevitably have to come to a two-state solution, that that's Correct. the only way. And inevitably that involves doing something about those settlements and those settlers which Correct. is a very difficult thing to do in Israel. So, yeah. so if you're in your optimistic mood, Dr. Pincus, uh, how is that <laughs> going to be resolved? Yeah. Um, okay, the, the appetite for a two-state solution is going to severely diminish because people are going to say, what are you, out of your minds? Are you crazy? Are you a lunatic? What are you going to give them a state? with a border, 
so they could replicate what Hamas did in Gaza um, um, into major Israeli cities. You have to be kidding. On the other hand, you're saying, guys, they're not going anywhere. There are 4.5 million Palestinians, and the number is going to reach five pretty soon. And they're going to say, fine, you don't want a two-state solution. You want us, you have us. And then they're going to use the Martin Luther King or the Mohandas Gandhi line of, you know, one man, one vote, meaning the one-state solution. So in order to be optimistic and find a silver lining here, you need an Israeli government that basically admits the following um, formula or equation. Uh, we can't stay and they cannot govern. So how do, we, how do we bridge that gap? We should not stay and they, at this point, they being the Palestinians, cannot govern. The only way I see is like you had in Kosovo at the time, like you had uh, um, in Okinawa, for that matter, like you had in Japan or Germany, you make it an international trusteeship for 20 years, meaning Israel will vacate the territory um, gradually and, 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 and an international force and international civilian forces will, will gradually take care. Is that, is that easy? No. Is that replete with the problems? Absolutely. Did anything else work? Never. Um, and that includes, Al, per your question, that includes getting rid of, or at least uh, uh, clustering the, the, uh, uh, the settlements. Look, in those Clinton parameters that I, Bill Clinton parameters that I alluded to earlier, the issue of the settlements was, was uh, very clear. It basically said 80% of the settlers in the West Bank most of which are, are not ideological, meaning they are not there because there is a biblical covenant between God and, and the Israelites. They're there because of a, uh, a cost of living, quality of life uh, issue. 80% of the settlers are clustered in 11 on 11% of the territory. So Bill Clinton said, you basically annex seven or eight percent of the territories you get rid of isolated settlements, or you incorporate them physically into the three settlement blocks. Israel annexes these three settlement blocks and compensates the Palestinians with areas adjacent of, of, of equal size in Gaza. That, that, that was a perfect solution, I mean, on paper. Um, and it could have worked, but, you know, the, the, the Camp David blew up. This is July of 2000. And before you knew it, Barak uh, uh, lost his government. And Arafat made promises that he couldn't keep. And all hell broke loose. And Bill Clinton was out of office, uh, uh, um, uh, completed his second term uh, five months later. But you're asking me to be optimistic. Um, go back to the Clinton parameters. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not using Clinton just because James is your co-host here. Oh, James this, doesn't, James does not <laughs> mind if you pander to him, Elon, I promise <laughs> you. James, go ahead. So, so Elon, let, let, me, let me check my history a little bit. So Clinton leaves office, the Israelis are, are in God. By, by, by the way, James, there are, there are sirens in Tel Aviv right now. Right, I bet. So, so, the Israelis in Gaza in 2005, 2006 decided they're going to pull out. 
Yes. And the question becomes, how is Gaza going to govern themselves? Well, they wanted to hand it over to Al-Fatah, the Palestinian Authority. Yes. When they left. And Condoleezza Rice, the provost of Stanford University, a brilliant person, said, no, you have to have an election. That's right. And Israelis said, don't do that because it's going to end poorly. But, of course, the provost of Stanford University, having to be a genius in the United States, insisted that they have the election. Hamas wins the election, and there's never been another election. That's right. So we were going on the principle that people have the right to (laughs) self-determination. When we were told, they're not going to determine to go the way that you want them to go. And then when they go the way you don't want them to go, you don't have another election. It's hard to think that we that all that you have something of this magnitude. Look, we're all we're all Democrats. I mean, small d right. here. Uh, right, right. Um, we all believe in election. But you're, uh, um, I'm sorry, you're absolutely right, James. I mean, but remember the context. Remember the context. Uh, George Bush invades George W. Bush invades Iraq in March of 2003, and then changes the purpose of the war five times before they all settle on we need to democratize Iraq. Part of the democratization process of Iraq is elections throughout the Arab world, okay? Right. As Bush said, and as the provost of Stanford University, as James describes, Condoleezza Rice said, Ariel Sharon, then the prime minister of Israel, implores George Bush, look, I know you're committed to democracy. I know you're committed to the concept of a free election. I got to warn you. Hamas is going to win in Gaza, and Hamas is going to execute people in the streets, okay? This is not the democracy that you think uh, of sitting in the White House and and, and contemplating uh, everyone, you know, replicating the American model of democracy. This is not going to happen. Bush insists. Condoleezza Rice insists. And there you have it. Um... Hamas win the election. They summarily execute hundreds of uh, Fatah activists. And here we are uh, 17 years later. Well, I mean, you know, when sometimes when you, 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 you think of the stuff and the ability that nations have to harm themselves and their allies is, 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 is staggering, I guess. It, it no, it's a march of folly uh, 2.0. What can I so, say? One more question before I let you go. So, parliamentary democracy, 80% of people in Israel don't like this government now. Correct. I mean, they, 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 and Jim Gerstein, to his credit, came on the show right after and said, they're going to blame Netanyahu for this. This is not, this is my family, a bunch of Likud, my wife's family, they all they should have known. And part of the... Wait, this is, this is a scoop. I didn't know that Jim Gerstein's wife comes from a Likud family. Yeah, she's a... Yeah, yeah, well, she's some of her... I don't know. I don't speak for his wife's family. But some of her Likud at, at, at any rate. And the Likud right, right, right. telling me. So, but at any rate, that's... How do you get to an election? So this government couldn't stand another 48 hours if there if wasn't a war going on. Is there any provision in Israeli law or custom to how you conduct an election at, at, well, during wartime? That's an excellent question. Uh, look, I don't think there's going to be an election during the war. Okay. What I would, what I would have expected from Netanyahu is to say, I, 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 I need to manage this crisis, but I understand the responsibility the buck stops here. 
and I'm calling, when this is over, I'm going to call for an, an immediate election. That, by the way, would have freed him uh, from a lot of political pressures, but he's not made, he's not wired that way. Right. So, so the mechanism is going to be one of two, uh, one of the following two. What we have here something, it's a parliamentary democracy, obviously. So we have something which is called a constructive motion of no confidence, meaning that you can bring down the government, and now the constructive uh, um, uh, term comes in, if you give a name of someone who will replace the incumbent prime minister, and 61, or a majority, 61 right. being a majority, assuming everyone attends, and 61 people support Alon or James or Al. Right. Um, all you need to do that are five people from the opposite, from the coalition. The coalition right now is 64 out of 120. If you have five rebels who say, going back to what Al mentioned, uh, um, um, and, and they say, okay, our, our candidate is Benny Gantz, um, then, then he's out within the day. He's out. Okay, so that's one. That's one. That, that's fascinating. I did, that that is totally, totally right. New to me. Okay, it's Go called a, a constructive vote of uh, motion right, right. of no confidence. The right. second is that Likud, uh, um, you know, that there are three, four, five, six, seven. I don't know. Righteous people. Um, I doubt that, but because you asked, I'm being polite and answering. There are five, six, seven righteous people uh, who still stand up for something and have a um, have a spinal cord and testicles to and, and say, "Okay, enough is enough. We're splintering from Likud." So, are you voting of no confidence? No, we we want Netanyahu to resign on his own volition. He's not going to have a majority in the Knesset. They're not going to vote to replace him. Okay, they're going to say, "We haven't changed our political inclination. We just will not serve under this man." The Knesset ceases to function, and then the Knesset votes for its own dissolution. That's the second uh, way. You don't replace the prime minister within the existing system, the existing Knesset parliament, like the first mechanism, but you basically bring about its dissolution and uh, 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 generate a new election. These are the two mechanisms. These are the two political mechanisms. And Jim Gerstein, our mutual friend, is absolutely right. He's not going to survive this. Well, I, for my part, it just pays to have somebody on the show that knows what they're talking about, and that would be a, an apt description of you, sir. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. No, you you have been a great guest, and I'll give you one bit uh, of, of good news since you are a staunch believer uh, in democracy. Jim Jordan is going down to defeat again as uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives. That, is that the second or the third round? This is the second round, but it's going to be just as bad, maybe maybe worse. It's about well, yeah, halfway is, through. Is, is he going to beat the uh, 15 rounds? <laughs> <laughs> Elon, thank you so much. You. you have just I, been a terrific guy. Really, really, really. I learned so much, man. Please be safe. Thank you, Thank sir. you. Thank you guys again. Bye-bye. James, if what you see in the Congress of the United States is, is just, you know, inexplicable, 
It's more like a banana republic, and you just can't understand what the hell is going on. There's one person to turn to, and that is the dean of congressional <laughs> correspondence, the senior correspondent, Washington correspondent for the New York Times, Carl Hulse. Oh, I'm not even sure you can make sense of the craziness that's going on up there. It, it reminds me of, of Casey Stengel. Can anybody, can anybody here play this game? Yeah, yeah. You know? It's uh, it's quite a it's quite a spectacle all around, no doubt about it. And it is hard to realize, you know, when you see Hakeem Jeffries, you know, a lot of people go, "Well, Hakeem Jeffries got more votes. Why isn't he the speaker?" Well, it doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't. And why did I mean? Did you ever think that Jordan had a chance, given his controversial past? I did. I did believe he had a chance, uh, and it was. Uh, you know, it was pretty stunning, right, for a guy who like that who's been basically a guerrilla tactician since he right. got in here to want to be speaker. You know, has never, never passed a bill. Actually, I checked; he's never met or just or talked to Joe Biden. You know, so it's it's hard to imagine rising to speaker and not even having some crossing with Biden at some point, right? I mean, Biden's crossed with everybody. Uh, but you know the, the the big thing going on here is Steve Scalise. So we're we're old school here. Steve Scalise went into a a meeting with the House Republican Conference, came out with the most votes for Speaker, and immediately they started uh, undermining and sandbagging him. And some some people, some of the more traditional institutional type in the in the Republican conference, they didn't like that at all. Well, one of the other, I guess, I, I I wasn't as smart as you, I guess, because I didn't think he'd come anywhere close. And I, I guess in some ways I was stunned that he got 200 votes. But one of the factors is, is conservative media. I mean, Sean Hannity was making phone calls. On, I, 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 you know, I've never heard of anything like that. Uh, and I guess it does make a difference in that conference. Yeah, you, you didn't lobby for Tip back in the day. No. <laughs> well, he didn't. He didn't need your help. He, he asked but, me not to, Carl. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but here's 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 what you have to get your head around a little bit. Jim Jordan, in a lot of ways, is the Republican conference, right? There's more of him and people aligned with him than there are, uh, you know, say aligned with a guy like Steve Womack, who the Arkansas. Republican, you know, who's who's opposing Jordan right now, the approach guys. I mean, Jordan, he he fits the type, you know, he he voted against certifying the election. He wants to impeach Biden. He's organized shutdowns. There's there's a lot of there's a lot to like with him among his fellow House Republicans. We're, we're taping this on Wednesday afternoon to air first thing Thursday. And things may happen, uh, but it seems to me the only uh, recourse they have now is a short-term one, which is to make McHenry the an interim speaker, so they can do business. I mean, they can't do any business right now. Right, right. You know, the I've actually said from the beginning that I thought McHenry was probably the safety valve here, but there are a lot of Republicans, uh, especially at at the top who don't want to go along with the, this. There's nervousness among Democrats 
about some of the precedents it would set. I don't want to get too in the weeds, but uh, the 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 trick for the Democrats is, you know, they don't want to they don't want to vote to install a Republican speaker, obviously, but but uh, McHenry is effectively the speaker right now, so he has limited powers. But so in some ways. You can finesse that and you're just, uh, you know, establishing some powers uh, for for Patrick McHenry. I think the Democrats now are sort of going, well, if we can defeat Jordan, that's a pretty big win for us. And if we can keep them from putting in uh, a permanent speaker and give Patrick McHenry some sort of temporary authority. King Jeffries, I think, uh, did some something smart last night when he came out after Jordan's first vote fail. And he made it clear that he and the Democrats aren't interested in getting the gavel. They know they can't. They, they, he said, you know, we recognize the election results and we're not election deniers, which of course was a big swipe at Jordan and those guys. And, you know, but he's like, we want to help you get somewhere, especially with what's going on in Israel. So, you know, I think there's some democratic openness to it, but it's a, it's a tricky situation, honestly to do what they're talking about doing. But, you know, the way they're stuck right now, that might be the only alternative. Yeah. James Carville. So, so Carl, if you're like me, when you pick up the phone, generally the first sentence that somebody utters to you, can you believe this shit? Because (laughs) (laughs) that seems to describe a whole lot of things. And you've been doing this forever and a day, and Alan, I've been doing it every day. Can you believe that the Democrats, how, if you took the last party line votes since 2018, I don't think there's been three Democratic defections on anything. Yeah, there's some threats. I'm sure I, I'm sure I could find a couple. Oh, you but can no, find a couple. But the point is, you'd have to kind of look. All right? no, before, before this, you, you, you could rattle right. off 40 off the top of your head. And right. they That's, were always unified. They are unified. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi actually had a similar majority and managed to function. Of course, her people uh, did not cross her. These are different kinds of politicians. I've been writing about them a lot over the last month. And it's like they they like chaos. They are here to tear things down and rebuild it in their image. And they're willing to take the hit. Now, what's happened so far is a lot of these Republicans, or at least 20 and 22 today, they've stared uh, at this and, and said, you know what, we don't want to go there. We don't want to go there. Uh, the, the, the nomination speech for uh, Hakeem Jeffries uh, have been interesting because uh, Pete Aguilar has really gone after Jordan in those speeches. You guys know how these speaker nominating speeches you'd stand up and say how great your guy is and you never mention the other guy well they've been focused on the other guy and i think it's hard to quantify but i think there's republicans sitting there listening to that going holy cow are we actually going down this road because the democrats are going to savage us with everything that jim jordan has ever done and it's a pretty lengthy list so carl i have no patience for people who like go on TV and pontificate and say, well, it's actually the Democrats' fault. No, it's not. All right, let's just, um, let's stop right there. All right? Yeah, but that's McCarthy. Suppose, right, suppose the Democrats, let's say they go through two more votes, and, and, and 
you know, Hakeem, who, who, by the way, gets really good reviews. I mean, I always ask people because I, I know him kind of, but not that that well. He's a different generation. <laughs> for the most part, I mean, not for part people tell me to think very hard. So look, I tell you what, we will save you. You provide us, you give us a name of six Republicans and a speaker that will do one thing. Now, you understand the Hassett rule is Dennis Hassett is the longest serving speaker in the history of the Republicans speaking to Israel representatives who had some issues with wrestlers. But we're still yeah. wrestling with the Hassett rule. And now Jim <laughs> Jordan is wrestling with the Hassett rule. You see, there's a lot of wrestling going on. Yeah, and Jim Jordan was a wrestler. He, uh, yes, there was some wrestling going on there, as was Dr. Strauss. The House of Representatives operated from 1789 to 1999, where a majority of the House wanted to bring up a bill and vote on it. They could do it. Let us do that. Right. You can keep all your committee chairs and all your corner offices. Let's do the people's business and let a majority of the House bring a piece of legislation to the floor. Yeah, I think that is one of the, that's one of the uh, concepts that they have pitched to the Republicans. You know, we don't want guarantees. We just want opportunity, right, to consider right. some of this stuff. Uh, you know, and the, it's so restricted. Uh, you know, maybe you could even say, you know, bring them up on suspension, or then, then you got to have uh, 290 votes. But uh, it's just, but it's so foreign now to these parties, you know, to make these accommodations. Thing that, things that were classic moves back in the past now seem rare, you know, and it's like, you remember uh, speakers and even chairmen were their own power centers uh, back in, right, right. In, in previous time. They call them the right Cardinals now. or something like that. Yeah, it's the Cardinals. They still call them the Cardinals on the Appropriations Committee. Their, their power has been diluted a little bit, but they are the ones actually who are sort of the core of the opposition to uh, Jordan. Now, you know, it's not all on uh, great principle. Jordan's anti-earmark, uh, you know, appropriators are pro-earmark, and they brought those back, and they don't want to lose them to Jordan. But I just think that, you know, they see Jordan and uh, some of the people who are in line with him, and they and who they just know they're, they want to cut, 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 cut. The appropriators don't want to have to deal with that. So, uh, one more question. I'll turn it back to Al. In all the coverage, you would never know that Kevin McCarthy was a human being, that he walked, he had <laughs> friends, he went to some members, you know, graduation or weddings or bar mitzvahs, yeah, yeah. and he yeah, raised yeah. money for him. He went in their districts, and they just plowed and quartered him, raped him, beat him publicly. And the public, well, he's just an automaton. He's just a, he's a human pretzel. He's a bowl of jello. But he has friends. Yeah. Kevin McCarthy actually has friends, and he has friends in the House of Representatives, and they're yeah. not happy. Yeah, true. I think he's been mistreated. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. At, at the hands of eight people. In, right? in politics at a level, and you know this because you've covered it, I've lived it, Al's covered it, is a human endeavor. Some people they actually like, there are people that like politicians that like them as friends that that call them yeah. on the phone and mourn when their parents die and celebrate when their children get married and all the shit that other human beings do but we do that yeah yeah now i think mccarthy there are people who are voting for him in these votes one it's a better vote for them rather than voting for jordan but they do feel that kevin mccarthy was abused you know kevin mccarthy he now calls the eight republicans who knocked him out the crazy eight 
you know, so he's come up with a new uh, term for that. But the, you know, but they all, people also think Scalise got to be, I think you're right. There's a human side to this that is his people. I, he's a personal yeah. guy. I know him. He's, I, I represent him. Oh, yeah. I'm in Troy Carter's uh, I call. I uh, called him in one of my uh, pieces a back slapper, and that day he literally slapped my back. So <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was right on the money there. Right, now, but I'm, go ahead. Yeah. I, I tell you, uh, as I say, I was surprised he got 200 votes. But I looked at some of those votes, and... Tom King Jr., Brian Fitzpatrick, the, uh, you know, a bunch of those Californians who won just barely last time in Biden districts. I mean, I, were they just sure he wasn't going to win? Because he sure as heck wouldn't have been a plus for them in 2024. Yeah, I think that's a, you know, like a party unity vote. And, and uh, they're probably going to regret it in some of these places. I think the Democrats are salivating over this Jordan thing. Now, even if Jordan doesn't get in, they have the votes uh, for, by these guys for him. So, you know, in some ways, they're they're no matter what happens, they're stuck with those votes. But there was an element of of hey, we gotta we gotta go together and do this. But they're but they're just not getting there. And you know, but Jordan, he's a fighter. He wants to. We'll see what happens here, but. Uh, you think you know, when you lose votes, again? when you lose votes on the second round, it's never a good sign. Yeah, I was going to say, do you uh, think he may try again? You know, Al, it's really dangerous trying to predict these things. That when he when the vote was over, he indicated that he would, and that there's you know indications there the other side that more people are going to vote against him. You know that he's had his two shots. Uh, he couldn't get across the finish line. Let's move on. But you know. These guys are stubborn, too. Let me ask you, you one know. more question. How, how was Trump a factor in any no, of this? I, I think he was a mild factor. I mean, John Hanley, honestly, might have been a bigger factor than yeah. Trump. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, these are internal. You know how these elections are. They get in the room and uh, and then out on the floor, you know, they don't want to get caught out. I, I've, I think that... Uh, I think people were maneuvering around and I don't, I, I think there's some Republicans who would have preferred, obviously, that Trump didn't say anything because that makes it harder for some of these, uh, swing district guys. Uh, so they weren't, they weren't thrilled with that. But, you know, Jordan is very tightly aligned with Trump and it's the Democrats. They're just, it, they're astounded in a way that, that Jordan is out there being put forward as speaker, you know, after, you know, uh, the, the stuff that's come out of him about January 6th and, you know, the election denialism and the voting not to certify the elections. I mean, it's a, it, to the Democrats, in a, it's an affront to the House and to the Congress that Jordan was even nominated. And the thought that he was is could or would have been speaker. I mean, it blows their minds, honestly. Well, I'm going to turn it back to James, but the other thing, you know, what he did was investigations and every yeah. damn one of them ended up, uh, you know, a flop. I mean, it was yeah, a they lot hadn't of... gotten very far on that, uh, no. you know, and, and this has totally distracted them from it. 
uh, I think there has been a lot of criticism. I, I mean, he's he's a he's a partisan combatant. He's not somebody that knows how to really play the legislative game or you know conduct the really kind of big oversight that both Democrats and Republicans used to do. I mean, it's it's all it's all boxing and wrestling and fighting. So uh, it is it it's pretty amazing that somebody would be up for speaker who literally has never passed a bill. Wow, James. So, Carl, I have friends of mine that describe to me powers like my children do that I have not remotely have or can do anything. So, people called me yesterday and says, you need to call somebody and go on TV right now and stop Jim Jordan from being speaker. First of all, I have no influence on the fucking speaker out. I appreciate the compliment. But what I told people was, why would I want to stop it? I'm a partisan Democrat. All right. I actually believe that there's only one, and you don't, of course, you don't have to agree with it, but there's the only salvation the country has right now, out of mind. And I've kind of politically, I'm kind of fine with Jim Jordan being the speaker every day. And I know what's dropping on him. I know this Ohio State rising stuff is not going away. There are films coming out on this, there's stories coming out on this. What? Let's all vote for him. You're talking like a campaign strategist there, uh, James, and I respect yeah, that. Right. I mean, but the government does need to run, uh, you know, agency. Well, you, you, you want those flight controllers being paid at some point. You know, there's a. you want people to be able to rely on their government services. Maybe I'm being a goody two-shoes. Oh, but I, yeah. You know, you're all like patriotic bullshit, but I'm in the partisanship. <laughs> <laughs> I respect what you're saying. And I think a lot of Democrats... We're looking at this going, man, I, you know, we're going to pick up 30, 40 seats with this stuff, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, it, it's you know. a, I got, you know, I'm con- confessing that I'm tempted by the powers of the, the, you know, winning elections or something like that, but I just. Down and dirty, man. I like it. Yeah, yeah you go. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Carl, you are, you know, we know this is a busy day for you. Every day is a busy day for Carl. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have been a terrific guest, as you were oh, last absolutely. time. And uh, whenever we're confused about Congress, we want to turn to you. And that means, Carl, you may be getting a lot of calls. Yeah. yeah. Right, yeah right. Now, I, I, well, when I come out with you, I kind of feel a little bit like that movie Space Cowboys. Remember when Clint Eastwood and all those old guys went into space? You know, it kind of it kind of brings me back to that. So <laughs> I'm happy to do it. And I'm glad I'm conflicted. The American enemy says no Jim Jordan, but the Democrat enemy says, please, please put this guy in there. <laughs> I, I, I like it. <laughs> all right. Thank you, man. Appreciate y'all. All right, guys. Okay, now for the outrage of the week. I'm going to go the other way this week because there's so much depressing. And Washington can be a pretty depressing town. The vitriol, wars in Ukraine and Gaza, and the insane right wing who wants to really tear down, destroy all government. Tuesday night, I accompanied my wife to an event that was uplifting and underscored the great value of so many of our devoted public servants. This was the service to American medals, the Sammies, they're called, given to those federal government employees who make our lives so much better, so much richer. These, these included recipients who helped craft 
the infrastructure measure, measure, the NASA team that was able to hit an asteroid, altering its course so it wouldn't hit the Earth, a government accounting official who exposed corruption in higher education and then facilitated student loan access for millions, two State Department officials who negotiated the release of Americans held in Russia and Venezuela, and FBI and justice officials who broke the code of drug lords and arrested more than 500 traffickers. And the Federal Employee of the Year who got the SAMI was the Defense Department's Laura Cooper, who created the structure to support supply and supply massive assistance to Ukraine and coordinating with allies. Thanks to all of them and to the SAMIs for honoring them. There are many, many good public servants uh, who we don't appreciate enough, James. I couldn't agree more. And of course, I grew up in the house and my dad was a postmaster, so an effective federal employee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Worked pretty hard in doing that. I'm going to stay on the, the kind of better, more uplifting news because it's not very <laughs> difficult. You know, our friend Jim Gerstein, we talk about on his show, has been on this show multiple times. Uh, he and his wife have uh, two boys, and one is, uh, by conventional standards, does quite well, and they have, their other son has some pretty profound challenges. And he was telling me stories in Denver, and he and his wife and his two boys were there, and he, of course, as you well know, and people who have, people in their family have challenges, and were try helping him in, feeding him in, making sure that he was taken care of. And an elderly guy comes up to the table just out of the blue. And says, you know, uh, I used to be governor of Colorado, and whenever I see people acting like this or treating family members, other people, with kind of kindness and humanity, I feel like it's part of my job to come up and, and could thank them and tell them what, what good work they're doing. And so Gerson's like, what the hell is this guy? Like, and he says, well, yes, sir, he says, what's your name? And he said, Roy Roma. It, Roy Roma is one of the most honorable people I've ever known in my life and is one of the most honorable, you, you know, you talked about those terrific federal employees. Uh, governor Roma was governor of Colorado and I, I might add a, a, a damn good one for being here and was kind of served mostly uh, at the same time President Clinton served and they were obviously very, very close friends. And when he left as opposed to I don't know, getting a job in government relations or, or, you know, becoming part of a big law. He became the superintendent of schools in Los Angeles County, California, which might be the top three hardest jobs in the United States. And he just is an exemplary man with exemplary kind of values and a, a, a real record. And uh, Governor Roma, my hat's off to you. Oh, 95 years of him. Well, that's a nice story. That's a yeah, nice story. Yeah. I mean, that guy is, he grew up right on the Kansas border. And his dad, I think he would told me, was like a, a postmaster and ran a general store. And he, like I did, he grew up very, very rural. But he's a really a fine man. Well, when you consider people like that, and as I said, those public servants that I saw Tuesday night, all yeah. of whom work long hours, the pay is not nearly what they can make in the private sector, uh, and they do an awful lot of good. And I get sick and damn tired of those uh, right-wing Republicans screaming about you know, government waste and let's get rid of all the bureaucrats. Let's get rid of all those uh, insane right wing uh, yeah. oh, guys. It's all, anyway. it's, it, you know, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's pathetic. But anyway, I'm glad that we had a chance to elevate some people who go, do good work. Yeah, me too. Me too. 
All right, James, now for our listener questions. Uh, boy, they are so good. The hardest thing I do, I think, every week is trying to figure out which seven we're going to use. But the first one is just, it's just tailored for you, James. It's Deborah in Laplace, Louisiana, who wants to know your take on the governor's race in Louisiana last weekend. It was a low turnout race. Did black voters stay home? I wonder if the Democratic Party even has a functioning organization in Louisiana, she asked. Well, we're going to start with the last question first. No, they don't. But, but, but in their defense, they don't have any money. They have no power. The, the turnout was miserable. It was 27% in Orleans Parish. That's the same thing as New Orleans, which, and I, I, I'm going to have to extrapolate my, my friend Greg Rimmer, who is, a, you know, best quant in the state, waiting for his analysis. But there's no analysis that's going to come back that the Democratic turnout, and particularly the black vote, was utterly miserable. And this continues a, a, a trend of low black turnout that has been prevalent since, uh, probably since Penn Biden been elected, to tell you the truth. And I don't know, and I keep talking about it. We talk about it a lot on this show. We keep talking about problem. No one mentions it. No one seems to be that concerned about it. And this is just another example. Now, we probably weren't going to win this race anyway. But to get for a Democrat to get 26 percent in Louisiana, that's I mean, there are white Democrats in Louisiana. Not a lot of us, but we're there. A third third of our population is black. Uh, I mean, Jesus, how do you get 26%? That's almost impossible. But that's where we are. And until somebody says, we're going to do some serious analysis here, and, and, you know, as Ross Perot would say, get under the hood and try to fix this, we're in a continuous low turnout loop. Somebody wake up. James, tell us about your new governor, your governor-elect. Well, he's um, a very, very, I don't want to get off on, you know, you got to give people a chance, but, but the indication is he's very, he's very Trumpy. In fact, he's probably more Trump than Trump. Uh, they did run a good campaign and they, they you know, just crushed everybody. They got Bill Cassidy to endorse him because they said, if you don't, we'll run somebody against you. And he's starting with a very favorable legislature. This legislature is not in any way, shape or form. They're as far right wing as he is. I hope I'm wrong, but what I see ahead here, you're a black person, a a gay person or a a librarian or a school teacher or just a, a person that you know, cares about pluralism and humanity, you, you might have, you might be in for a rough, rough four years here, dude. Rough. James, you, you, your state, Louisiana's made a lot of progress the last eight years under Governor John Bell Edwards in education and health care. Uh, is that, is that under threat? Can that be rolled back? I don't know if he'll roll back. Governor John Bell Edwards, who I think is in, in best governor of my lifetime, particularly when you consider the circumstances he served under. But he expanded Medicaid. I don't, I would, don't know that, but I would be surprised if Jeff Landry took that away. Uh, But I don't know that. They're right-wing enough and mean enough to do it. 
good question that that's on the table. And they don't, I mean, they don't have any, the legislature, if anything, is not an impediment to them. It's, it's an accelerant. It, the, the potential here, let, let's hope, let's hope for the best, but let's be prepared for the worst. Okay. Um, Next, James Drew in Cleveland, Ohio, asked, why wouldn't Republicans in Biden Democratic districts become independents and make a deal with the Democrats to vote for a speaker in exchange for not supporting an opposing candidate in the next election? Democrats not supporting because they can't make that deal because no one can stop a Democrat from running. They can cut him off from any money or cut her off from any money. And the right wing would mount a Republican challenger and the person could get caught in a squeeze. Some could survive that. Most would not. Uh, and it's a dangerous move, and uh, Republicans tend not to make dangerous moves. So as appealing, Drew, as that sounds, uh, I don't think it's very feasible. There is a Democratic message here that, that would be unbelievable, but no one will say it. What I would say is this. So what really caused this was the Hassard Rule. And for those who don't remember, it was named after Denny Hassard, the longest Republican speaker in U.S. history, who well, had to leave. A checkered past, but anyway, go ahead. He had to leave because he was raping restless, and he had to go to the penitentiary. But the Hassard Rule stayed after Denny Hassard went to penitentiary. And the Hassard Rule was, you ha in order to bring a bill to the floor, you have to have a majority of the majority. From 1789 to 1999, or wherever the House took off, that was not the rule. Except the Democrats would say, we want to be bipartisan. We'll do our part and say, if you allow a majority of the House to bring a bill up, then we'll, we'll support that, that speaker, wherever it is. You would sound so in, you know, and of course, Jim Jordan has his own stuff with wrestlers. I've got anybody that's in wrestling, don't, don't, don't fool with Republicans. That's my advice to you. But at any rate, <laughs> at any rate. <laughs> it's a pattern, isn't it, James? It's a, it's a pattern there. You know, they're, they're wrestling, wrestling a lot over there when they wrestle these young boys. But what, what's wrong with that? So, if say, where are you, you, I'm not being partial. I'm just saying, let's elect a speaker. That lets, if a majority of the House wants to vote on a piece of legislation, didn't let them vote. And I, I, that's nothing radical. We went for 210 years like that. What's the problem? And, and that way you just let them stew. And they said, well, you, you know, and you can, tell us how this rule can. Dennis Hassan. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I keep forgetting. If Dennis Hassan was a Democrat, he would be every fifth word today on Fox. Every fifth fucking word going through this. But James, go ahead. Because I, I watched Fox. I was dial sw uh, switching last night. Right. And, and I watched Fox. And it was when it was clear Jordan was going to lose. You know what they did? They were talking about how Biden screwed up the Middle East. Of course. Kaylee McElhenney, a great uh, press person and now television scholar, got on and talked about how much tougher and how much better it would have been if Trump had been in office. Well, if, if Trump said it wouldn't have happened if he was there. Right. right. Boy, this is a question. Cause it's not fair. Is, is he actually deteriorating? Trump? Yeah, he starts so low. I don't know. Well, you know, it's hard to say because he's been, you know, as as um, Governor Chris Sununu of um, New Hampshire put it at the gridiron dinner. You know he's fucking crazy. Uh, so you've known that for a while. So it's hard to tell if he's deteriorating or not. He does some crazy stuff. 
I, yeah, I, I don't know, because he's saying things that I don't have any idea of what uh, Judge Chutkin, I guess it is. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what she's going to do. She clearly doesn't want to put him in jail. He clearly has no intention of following any judicial order at all. And I'm beginning to wonder if they convict him, he just don't show up. I don't even get a warrant, I guess, after mandamus for the Supreme Court to turn, I mean, for the Secret Service to turn him over. I have no idea. But, whew, man, this is a mess. Well, I want to get uh, that great Stanford law professor, Pam Carlin, former Justice Department official. Yeah, she's great. promised that she'll come on sometime in the next couple of weeks to talk about this because I think you raise a very important question. Um, this, again, James, is for you. It's Jaden in Flora. Illinois. You know where Flora, Illinois well, is? I don't. I'm Sounds not, like I'm downstate, doesn't it? It, it, it kind of does. You know, yeah. sound like to make something on the in Western Illinois, but I have no idea. Jaden says, I'm almost 18 years old. I would love to eventually run for office. What would you recommend? Could you possibly share some information on getting started? I figured I would try to find out, find out from my favorite podcast. You start with a high recommendation there, Jaden, but take it over, James. So the best advice I ever heard about this was at the 25th, I guess, 20, one of the reunions we had of the Clinton campaign. And so the president was kind of going through the line and, you know, greeting everybody. He came up to Kaya Andrews, who worked for me in the war room. She lives in Nashville now. And Kaya's a kind of forward. And she said, uh, President Clinton, excuse me, but this is my daughter, Ashley. She's 13. And she wants to be president one day. What advice you have for her? And I'm like, God damn, God, why'd you ask? Me? You know? And he put, you know, put his head back and he shaked his finger. He said, two things, two things. Study hard and meet as many people as you can that are not like you. So my advice to you is study hard and go out and meet as many people as you can that are not like you. And I would add to that advice is, Put yourself in situations that you're not necessarily comfortable in. It's the only way you're going to learn. So okay, pass on to the master. All right, study Jay, hard. Study hard. Meet as many people as you can that are not like you. And Jaden, when you make it big, whether it's <laughs> senator, governor, president, I want you to say it all started with James Carville and the politics <laughs> war room. Okay. There you, there you go. Good luck to you, son. Patrick in Tampa, Florida says, despite their failings, uh, uh, W. Bush, Romney, and especially McCain were all decent men. Do you think liberals will reevaluate how they judge good people on the opposing side in the future because of Trump? <laughs> Hell, Patrick, oh I have reevaluated Richard Nixon. I mean, I, I would take him back in a minute. You know, I'm 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 on the fence on Sparrow T. Pass the envelope, please, Agnew. Uh, I mean, you know, it's amazing what uh, what Trump can do. Trump is the worst president we've ever had. He is a, a human being with uh, apparently no redeeming qualities. Um, and as you say, I think I disagreed with. Uh, uh, with uh, Mitt Romney and, uh, and McCain on some policies, but they certainly, you know, were and are decent men, and no one has ever accused Donald Trump of decency. But it, it, but it I guess what's interesting is, is if somebody's just decent, we don't care. I mean, there's no evidence that, that Cheney is not a good family man or, or anything like that, because he that's in the disastrous freaking war. It was still paying for, but you know, or, 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 but but you're right. If, if that becomes the default 
position, well, he's okay, at least he's not a, a, a criminal slob. Uh, yeah, but, but I, I, your point's well taken. It, it, it's, it's very well taken. You know, Adley Stevenson was a decent man. By any stretch of imagination, I mean, John Kerry's a decent man. You know, by any uh, how you look at it. So I, I don't know, but maybe, maybe this is maybe we define ourselves down. Who knows? We are taping this show on Wednesday, but I can report to you comfortably that Jim Jordan has been rejected again, uh, and he apparently did a little worse than he did the first time. So um, uh, you know, Jim, I know you spelled the name differently. Uh, but he looks like his speakership uh, is is dead. Anyway, the next question is from is from uh, Dash in Austin, Texas. No, no, no. I guess the next question uh, is from Patrick in Lexington, Kentucky, who says, "Why shouldn't Schumer start bringing up every single one uh, and two star generals and admiral nomination? They're all being held held up by that idiot from." Alabama, you know, Alabama, the former Tommy Tuberville, the former Auburn football coach, and keep the Senate in session 24-7 confirming them. Can the Republicans afford those optics? They are going to change the rule this week or there's going to be hell to pay. They are hurting the American military at a time uh, where we're sending fleets uh, to the Mediterranean. We are helping the Ukrainians to a massive amount, totally justified, and we're worried about China. And Tuberville and company are, you know, James, it really is, I don't know I can use the term treasonous, but it's certainly um, unpatriotic, and I think the Senate has to move to stop it right away. Yeah, it's clearly aiding and abetting the enemy, I guess, intent. In, in, I'm sure that any sane jury would think that he's too stupid to know what he was doing, which is always a, a, a viable offense with Tommy Tuberville. That's where you probably would, wouldn't go to trial because the stupidity defense would be very, very, very powerful in this case. Uh, I, I think uh, Gen, General Ty and I have a piece coming out in Stars and Stripes on this very subject. I, I hope they take it. I think it's been submitted. And I never thought that we could get to this point where the Republican Party is basically silent. And I guarantee you, flag officers voted for John McCain in 2008 at 79%. Okay? In, in 2020, assume that Biden, that Trump's on the ballot in 2024, he won't get. Four percent of flag officers' votes. Not, not that many of them are going to sway the election, but I think the, these people see these Republicans for what they are. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. Um, I'm, I'm looking. There's so many good questions here. You know, this is really a tough job, James. I, I want you to appreciate how how hard I have to work at this. Uh, but this is this is a, a good question. And it's a question worth asking just for the uh, for the venue alone. Pam in Al's Head, Maine. Al's oh, wow. Head, Maine. Oh, I love okay. it. Okay. Says you refer to the Jill Stein effect, but doesn't the true blame lay at the fault? This is a losing the uh, 16 election. Uh, at the fault of disgruntled Bernie voters who didn't support the party. Well, look, when you have something that catastrophic and that close and that geographically, you know, hit the sweet spot, think that Trump did, 
it, of course, the, the primaries hurt. Of course, the third party challenge hurt. But I, I go back to a simple thing to make this point. In 2020, Trump got a higher percent of the vote in Pennsylvania, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in Arizona than he did in 2016. Digest that. That's how dangerous the third party is. Now, he got a higher percent in 2020. He lost all four. He got a lower percent in 2016. He won all four. And, and it's not a bad poll. The Fox News poll is, is I can't tell you it's the best poll out there, but I, I, it's not one you automatically dismiss. They have no, Cornell West. It doesn't have a clear bias to it. No, I don't think it does. I, I, that, that, that's kind of universally accepted. Cornell West at nine. He's a catastrophe at three. We can't win with Cornell West at three. And, you know, people will say, well, these people wouldn't come out. if, if some, You know, maybe some, maybe, maybe not. Maybe some will. And, you know, they're constantly saying the Democrats don't do anything for you. And apparently it's hurting right now in the black boat. Yeah. And people hear that. It, it, this is a scary time, man. I, I got to tell you, it's frightening. You know, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and I look at this. Here's why I get so frustrated. I look at this week. And whatever the um, setbacks caused by the uh, by the tragedy with the hospital in Gaza, Joe Biden is doing, I think, a masterful job on on this terrible crisis over there. He is trying both to be supportive of Israel and also hold him back from really going crazy and making the same kind of mistakes that we made uh, after 9-11. And his secretary of state uh, has just been all over the region and by all accounts, again, uh, sometimes not getting as receptive an audience as you'd like. MBS, uh, the, the brutal ruler of Saudi Arabia, kept him waiting for hours. But he's doing a great job over there. And, um, and then I look at the Republican Party, and they're, they're, they're failing for the third or fourth time to elect a speaker. Uh, they're saying things that are just absolutely loony out in the campaign trail. And I think this should be a, a cakewalk. It really should be. But it ain't. And I'm like you. Uh, I, am, I am worried. It's not a cakewalk, and you, you, I mean, I, I can't imagine the pressure on these guys if they don't have any confidence in the Israeli intelligence services. They have no confidence in the IDF. I mean, it, it, we all were thought, well, boy, I tell you what, the Israeli, you can't fool with them. They, they, they on top of everything, and their whole myth of invincibility is in shambles. I, 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 I wish I'd have asked Alon this question, but if you've been the Hamas high command right now, wherever you are, maybe you're in a tunnel under Gaza, you fought, or you're in a rich Carlton somewhere in Abu Dhabi, probably, are you pleased or, or, or satisfied or dissatisfied about the way things are going so far? But when you let this loose, you had, you know, you had a pretty good idea what was going to happen. And, is this gone? I wonder if this is gone, like, according to the plan for Hamas. I don't know. 
Well, I don't know either. Uh, I would guess it depends on how it plays out over the next uh, three or four weeks. Right, and if, right. If, but, if you know, you just sitting there, as of today, right. if they they seen anything that discourages them, encourages them, or they're just, well, just the way it is. We knew to fight, fight back. We, we got to come into the long haul. Yeah. Boy, you read about all those tunnels in Gaza, and then you read about all the rubble. And I, I don't, if they go in and go toward the door fighting in Gaza City, that, they're going to take some heavy casualties. I mean, General Petraeus said, I mean, don't take me, my word, take the general's word, but there's going to be some heavy casualties. He knows what Fallujah was like, and you've, oh, you've paralleled yeah. it to Stalingrad, and I think it's uh, it's as but, dangerous. <laughs> James, our, our final question, because we have been too domestic uh, in the last couple of weeks, so it's coming from William in Fontainebleau, France. And William, I think, is challenging you about what he calls the never-ending talk about Biden's age. He says age is a virtue and not as important as you think when it comes to presidential politics. Shouldn't we focus more on how we can get him to win? So let me explain about my friend, because a lot of people misunderstand what I'm saying. First of all, it doesn't matter what my opinion on someone's age is. I can sit down and say, look, I'm 79 next week. I, I think perfectly fine to be 81. I can tell you this. The American public thinks he's too old, and overwhelmingly so. And that's just a judgment that they have come to. Can you, once a person makes that judgment, can they be, can other events, can he, he has a, a, a really sharp press conference or he's able to run up a flight of steps? Uh, is that going to change anybody's mind? That's where, and so that's the question I'm, I'm trying to bring forth to people. I have my own feelings. They're not really that important to anybody else. But I can tell you what other people are thinking, and they think it's too old. End of, end of story. And they're not really torn on the question. They're pretty definitive. Yeah, I talked to uh, several really prominent Pennsylvania politicians, all of whom were publicly with Biden, all of whom were pulling hard for him to win, will help him any way they can. And they say uh, almost every time they talk to a voter, uh, they get the same response. Hey, he's done a good job, but he's too old. Time to go. And you got to turn that around. And it's, that's a challenge. I don't know how you turn around. Yeah. I, I mean, I just don't know how you persuade someone. I just, I don't, I don't know, but, it's a, but they, right now they think he's too old. Wow, huge numbers. Yeah. Okay, keep those questions coming in. Uh, And any we didn't get to this week, we'll try to get to next week. But, boy, you keep us on our toes. And we got we got old, old Jaden. We're going to start him in politics. And we may not be around, but when he really goes to that elevated status, James, and want to look back and see two old guys help me back in 2020. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> There's good questions today. Thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carvel, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor, ExpressVPN, in our show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them because when you do, it helps make this podcast happen. Now, to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. 
You also can find other shows you might enjoy on the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. And remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.